So it's Sunday morning. A nice building opens its welcoming doors. People file in. Seats are just close enough, but not too close for comfort. People come and they're singing encouraging peppy songs. There's a lively speaker with an absolutely moving message given. (laughs) People are encouraged to get to know each other and to network, maybe even a hug or two. And uh, service projects and outreaches are planned. Now, my guess is that sounds like the Sunday morning that many people have across the country and around the world. And it's intended to be that way. But there's something very different about this particular type of gathering. It's called a Sunday assembly. And it completely takes the form of church and removes God from the equation. This is a a quote from a guy named Sanderson Jones, a British comedian who started these Sunday assemblies. He calls it, it's all the best bits of church with no religion. It's meant to be a home for atheists and agnostics and humanists who are seeking out community but simply don't want the baggage of God. Now, in a bit of irony that is just too delicious to pass up, um, there's 30-odd of these Sunday assemblies around the world and uh, being a cheap knockoff of the church, apparently they inherited one of the least favorite parts of church. Uh, That is that one group of unbelievers had a disagreement so sharp with another group of unbelievers that they had an unbelieving church split. (laughs) Horrible, I know, but... uh, Now, at one level, that's a a funny little wrinkle to to realize that the church is being ripped off, in a sense. But at another level, it's really sad, isn't it? It speaks to a deep longing within each of us that we know we're not meant to go through this life alone. We know we're meant for community. And if we don't find it in the right place, well, we will find somewhere else to try and get it. As believers, we should know, I pray that you know, that you were meant to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You were meant to be a part of Jesus' mission in this world, in the place where his spirit empowers his people, in the local church. But let's be honest, there are lots of different local churches out there, and while we might rejoice over their ministries and the good in them, there are probably some things that we've seen that we wouldn't want to be true of our church, particularly as a church starting off as a church plant, we need to ask the question, what should our church be like? I mean, some churches, uh, the spiritual temperature is so cold, you understand that phrase, the frozen chosen. There's other churches where the holy huddle is so tight that you just get the sense that you or anyone else is not really intended to make it on the inside. Or, Or maybe it's a church that, Seems like it's got a lot lot of zeal, a lot of enthusiasm, but it's so light on substance, you're worried a stiff breeze will just tip the whole thing right over. What sort of church should College Park Castleton be like? And more importantly for each of us as individuals, what sort of church should you put your care of your soul and your partnership in the gospel behind? Well, the passage before us in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 presents for us a a sort of a model church. And as we study it, we're going to see that God has not left us without instruction 
for what a local church is supposed to be about. We're going to go through this passage and we'll see that Jesus has a mission, that his spirit is empowering, that there's a community for us to be a part of. And that church is supposed to look like these four attributes that we will draw out from this passage. And my prayer is that at the end of this, you will not only be convinced that you need to be part of a local church, but that we as a gathering, as a, a congregation, will be convinced that this is the sort of church, by God's grace, we're going to be about. We're going to see that as we move through the passage. Mostly we're going to focus in chapter 2, um, but we'll move through it. We'll see four attributes of this spirit-empowered community of Christ. The first of those attributes is that a spirit-empowered community is a learning community. It's a learning community. Now, right there in verse 42, we have one of uh, the, the kicks off this kind of summary section for the things that came after and it comes bef- uh, came before and it comes after the book of Acts. Uh, there's three of those. There's another one in chapter 4 and there's another one in chapter 5. And that summary section has a summary verse, which is verse 42, which is where we'll draw three of those attributes out from. But I want you to notice the first matter that we're told about this church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, remember the context of where this church came from. This was the original church plant. (laughs) There was no church before this one. Uh, There were 120 or so disciples uh, that saw Jesus uh, get uh, ascended up into heaven that were huddling in an upper room, waiting, as the angels told them, for the Spirit to descend. And when the Spirit came, they were given uh, just this miraculous sign. They started speaking all these different languages, and a crowd gathered around them. All, All these Jews that were in town started coming around, trying to figure out what was going on. And then we see the first evangelistic rally in uh, in Christian history. Peter gives this sermon at Pentecost. He testifies that Jesus is the risen Messiah, that he is the hope of the world that they've been waiting for. And miracle of miracles, people believe. 3,000 of them. They go from a church of 120 to a church of 3,000 in one day. (laughs) Talk about growing pains. Uh, how, How in the world does a community like that even operate? Where, where would you even start as a, a pastor trying to think through this? Like, what would you do if the Lord brought that sort of exponential growth to your congregation? How would you care for them? Well, verse 42 tells us you start by making sure that they're learning the right thing. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, devoted, that's a, an interesting phrase there. The idea is it's something that you give yourself to over and over and over again, paying careful attention to something of great importance. Uh, Maybe like uh, basketball like I do, you'll see uh, players when they go to the free throw line, they'll do like a little ritual that's exactly the same every single time they go up, at least that's what they're shooting for. And uh, there's a reason for that. It's because when you do something over and over and over again with your focus on it, Eventually, it just becomes natural. It becomes muscle memory. We, a, any of us in any of our industries have this same sort of dynamic. If, to be good at any particular thing, it requires devoting yourself to it so that we will gain in proficiency. Well, what's the matter of first importance for a healthy, spirit-empowered community of Christ? 
It's to pay attention to God's word. Now, the particular form God's word took at this point, it was the teaching of the apostles. Now, these were men that had walked with Jesus. They had heard his mouth, the words from his mouth firsthand. Uh, if we were to ask, what is it that exactly that Jesus taught them? What was it they were teaching among the believers? Uh, surely it was the sayings of Jesus that we have recorded for us in places like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But also it would have been the Old Testament scriptures. If you go through the book of Acts, you'll see over and over again that they go to these Old Testament passages and show how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And all of the first converts would have been Jews who knew their Hebrew Bibles. They would have paid careful attention to God's word, and God's word would have injected life into this community. Now, we need to be noted that we don't have the original apostles here with us today. So we can't devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles in exactly the same way that the earliest church here did. But friends, what we do have is the writings that the apostles left us. Recorded for us in the 27 books of the New Testament. Written down, passed down from generation to generation by God's grace, preserved. So that we are not left with no idea of what God, des- God desires for his people. We are, have been given the Holy Scriptures, to guide us. Now, that's a very important point for us to stop and realize. You know, th- there are times where a charismatic, uh, well-spoken person can get people to on their same wavelength to say, yeah, I want to buy whatever that guy's selling. You can, people can become followers of a particular figure, even at times when people are using the form of Christianity. But the authority for believers and for a spirit-empowered community of Christ, can never come from an individual. Now, I stand up here, and I am preaching, and I do so with the confidence that I'm speaking the words of God. But I don't do that because I'm especially clever, or because I have a special gifting, or, or, or because I think highly of myself. Quite the opposite. The only authority me or any other preacher like me has insofar as we say the same thing that the scriptures that were left for us say. Friend, if there were to come a day where I were to stand up and to preach with the most power you could imagine, something contrary to the Bible, it's your duty at that point not to stand for that. Either confront me, talk to one of our elders, or get out of the room. If Collins Park Castleton at any point starts preaching something other than the Bible, then God's authority has left this place. The only authority that we have, the only place we can go to know what God desires for us, and the only place that will give us lasting life as a church, is the very word of God. Now this is one of the reasons why, as a church, we are committed to what's called expository preaching. That is, every time you come to this church, College Park Castleton, you will have someone do their best by the grace of God to teach the Bible in an understanding way. Uh, There's lots of other ways that we could try and communicate God's word. We're convinced that this is the most effective way and the way that is most faithful to the model of ministry that God has laid out. That means every time you come to worship, you should come with your Bible in hand and you should come ready to learn what God's word says. 
As you learn, your spirit will be strengthened. As you learn more about God and his word, you'll find yourself a more faithful disciple of Jesus. Your head and your heart are connected. You cannot become a more spiritual Christian without diving deeply into God's word. I hope you know that as an individual Christian too. I I hope you're taking seriously your call to feed yourself from God's word. Uh, Maybe you're here and you don't really know how that's done. You haven't had formal Bible training or there's things in the Bible that perplex you. Uh, If that's the case, don't be discouraged. We all started somewhere. God's word is uh, deep, at times difficult to understand. And yet the task is worth it. And one of the beautiful parts about being a community that learns together is we can learn from each other. Let me just encourage you. We have men's and women's Bible studies going, and if you don't know how to study the Bible, that's a great place to start. Or maybe find someone that's been a believer longer than you and ask them, hey, would you, would you just get together with me for the next month and show me how to read the Bible? Friend, I, I'll guarantee you this. It may not be easy, but as you dig into God's Word on your own, And as you sit under the teaching of God's word regularly, you will find your walk with Jesus only getting stronger and stronger. Spirit-empowered community is a learning community. See that there in 42. That that learning happened both uh, in big groups. It says they gathered in the the temple courts. If you look down there in uh, verse 42. Uh, 46 and day by day attending the temple together it it also probably happened one-on-one now but that wasn't the only thing that was going on with this new community of christians empowered by the spirit the other mark second mark of it is that the spirit empowered community is a loving community now the second set of phrases there we have in verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and breaking bread. Now those two phrases really are getting at the same sort of idea. That there was a unity, a oneness, a togetherness to that, those earlier, uh, to this first church. Now that word for fellowship is a translation from a word that can be used for business partners. They, they, they lock arms together in order to make an economic profit. It's really just a way of saying that there is a a togetherness that people have with a particular mission in mind. They they, they come together to do something. And the form of that togetherness comes out in two ways. It comes out in the living and the giving. So first, let's look at how it comes out in their living. Now, it tells us there that they broke bread together. It also, down in 46, told us they attended the temple together. And then we're also told in uh, 46 that uh, breaking bread in their homes, that is that they were in their homes together and that they received food with glad and generous hearts. See all the togetherness that's there? One of the marks of the Spirit's empowerment of a local church is that somehow or the other, that church finds a way to do life together. Now, let's just be frank. In the ancient world, this would probably have been easier than it is for us today. Uh, Living how they did, they didn't travel as far regionally from each other. Um, Hospitality was held in much higher regard than we hold it in today. And yet, let's acknowledge there's some serious challenges to what this early church had to deal with. 
they were getting people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, as the church progressed, they got people that were both Jews and Gentiles. They had a, a racial dynamic that was difficult. And yet this vitality that God brought into the church by his spirit, it was manifested in these people living with one another, living in community together. Now, friends, I, I know life is busy. If you ask someone how they're doing, that's one of the default answers. I'm busy. <laughs> I, I said the same thing multiple times this morning. Uh, I don't think we're being dishonest when we say that. And yet our busyness can't keep us from the place God intends for us to be blessed. We need to find ways that we can really be together with other believers. Now, gathering on Sunday morning is certainly one of those things that needs to happen. But friends, if that's the extent of of the fellowship that you, f- you uh, share with other believers, l- let me just warn you, that that's a dangerous place to be. One of the ways we're hoping to get after this is by launching a whole bunch of new small groups this year. Where the idea is that we want to have little pockets where it's possible to get to really know and be known by other believers so that we can live this out together. Now, I recognize small groups may not work necessarily for everyone in every stage of life. But somehow or the other, you need other believers to be alongside you. A Christian on their own is a Christian in danger. God intends for his spirit-empowered community on church for mission. He intends for us to be doing life together. That also comes out, this love they have for each other also comes out in their giving. They're living in their giving. Now, this is what we see in 44 and 45, and it's a really countercultural sort of putting people over possessions. Look with me in verse 44. And all who believed were together had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, as soon as we hear that, we have to realize that when we study the Bible, we need to be very careful about the baggage we bring to the text. This was written 2,000 years ago to a particular community over in the the Mideast. It was written in a particular context, and we can't just rip it out and pretend like it was written directly to us without doing the work of understanding what was going on there. So my guess is, if you're like me, you read those verses, and immediately in your mind you say, Uh uh-oh, that sounds like socialism to me, (laughs) right? I mean, you get a little nervous. Like, is the Bible here advocating a a form of redistribution of wealth at the governmental level? Is that what this is saying? Now, let me just say it's not advocating that. But let me just also push against where I came from when I started studying this. The primary point of this text is also not to say push capitalism. It's doing neither of those things. Only when we understand what was going on back then can we understand what's going on right now and how this text impacts us. So what is it saying? Well, it's saying that people were valued more than possessions. That's that's the way of summarizing it. Now, back then, there was no such thing as a social safety net provided by a government or any other institution. If you fell on hard times in the ancient East under the Roman rule, your only recourse, let's say you got into debt, your only recourse would be to sell yourself or your family members into slavery. 
Not exactly a nice thing to do. There was no social worker that would come along. There, there was no welfare. There was nothing like that. Now, there were some people that were trying to provide little pockets of community that would provide for each other's needs in some way akin to co uh, a commune or socialism. Uh, so the ancient Essenes, uh, where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls from, uh, they practiced a form of uh, confiscating each other's possessions when you join the group. You join the group and you handed over your house and your car and everything to them and they decided what to do with it. What's happening with the Christians is neither of those things. Here we see a voluntary generosity that goes far beyond any expectations. Let me show you how you can see it's voluntary. Flip over to chapter 4 with me. So in our uh, second set of texts in chapter 4, um, w once again, you get this communal idea in 32 that sounds a bit like socialism. Now, the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of their things belonged to him, was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, right there, it certainly sounds like a proof text for, for socialism, but keep reading down in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and then it was distributed. Now here, notice, a guy named Joseph, also known as Barnabas, verse 36 and 37, he sells one of his, uh, this possession of his, and he brings it to the apostles' feet. If you keep reading, in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. They have uh, some property that they sell. They also bring it to the apostles' feet. Only this time, they only bring part of the proceeds, and here's the key, they lie about it. When Ananias and Sapphira are rebuked, they're not rebuked for stealing from God or holding back what rightly belonged to other believers. No, it was theirs to do with what they wanted. They are rebuked for pretending to do one thing when they're actually doing another. They're rebuked for lying. All this to say is that the believers still own their possessions, they still had rights over their houses. They still had homes to live in. And yet, as needs came up, as people fell on hard times, this community of believers was so overwhelmed with generosity that they were able to meet every single need every single time. Now that's breathtaking if you think about it. Uh, maybe you've been the recipient of some generosity. I, I hope that's the case. Maybe someone has brought you a meal when someone was sick, or maybe someone's dropped anonymously an envelope with some money in your mailbox when they knew it was difficult to make ends meet. But for generosity to be this pervasive, this the norm, that you could say there was not a needy person among them, friends, that is just countercultural. That's people looking at other believers and saying, I'm going to value this person over my possessions. How do you get there? You only get there, you can only slay selfishness to the point where you value people that way through the gospel of Jesus. You realize what God has done in giving to you so richly, so much so that you're willing to let go of the things he's blessed you with. You have been blessed with possessions so you can be a blessing to others. Now, friends, there may be specific things that God is laying on your heart even this morning. Things that 
you've been holding on to just a little too much. At the prompting of the Spirit empowering us as a church, I pray this morning that you would let go of whatever it is, and that you would respond in generosity because of what God did for you. But I also want to encourage you by reminding you of what it is, the, the uh, extravagant grace that we have experienced as a congregation to get here today. One of the core values of College Park Church is extravagant grace, this idea that the gospel of Jesus makes us far more generous than we ever would be on our own because we recognize the infinite gap that Jesus filled by giving up his death for sinners like us. And that extravagant grace has led College Park Church to do some pretty amazing things. One, one of those things is called the Next Door Mission. So we are a church plant that's a part of this mission to reach Indianapolis by planting local churches. Now, a lot of you in this room were members of College Park Church that were encouraged to leave that congregation to come form a new church here, knowing full well as the number of people goes down, the amount of giving goes down, the amount of people serving goes down, uh, money was sent with us, expertise, time, all of this was done because people believed that the grace of Jesus is enough. We can give away stuff because the mission of Jesus is worth pursuing even if it costs us dearly. We also need to recognize the generosity of just this building that we have had provided for us from the congregation, faithful congregation that used to worship here. Now, stuff like that doesn't happen unless God's Spirit is empowering a community to say, we are sold out for Jesus and we're going to do everything for His glory. The community of Christ is really what matters. One of the sure marks, one of the sure marks of a Spirit-empowered community they will value people over possessions. They will love each other through their generosity. Third attribute. A spirit-empowered community is a worshiping community. This is the last of the attributes that we get there in verse 42. Now, this time we're told that they devoted themselves to the prayers. It's an interesting way of saying it with the little article in front there, the prayers. Um, and it, it carries with it this idea that there will be formal uh, uh, corporate prayer times. You could call it an ancient prayer meeting of sorts. Whether this was something that was done in the temple or this was something that they would find uh, ways to do in people's houses, we don't know. But uh, we do know that this church regularly gathered together for the purpose of praying. We also know they gathered regularly in the temple. This was probably alongside other Jews, engaging of, of worship of the true God together as a, a part of the larger Jewish community that now realizes who the Messiah really is. What we see, though, in all of this is there is both this formal gathering together to worship God, and there's this heartfelt worship of God that's happening constantly. Look with me here um, in uh, verse 46. So they're uh, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And then 47, praising God. So there's glad and generous. There's gratitude in their heart. And then there's outward praise. There, there's just this, this spiritual sweetness in life among them that leads them to worship God at every opportunity. Now, maybe you're here this morning and 
Worship isn't coming easy. It's hard to get to church every Sunday. You find yourself making more excuses to be here. Maybe you've had a deep discouragement that makes it harder and harder for you to get on your knees and pray because you just, frankly, don't know that you can talk with God at this moment. Where do you go when you know the right thing is to worship, but you just can't seem to get there? Friends, I think we need to go to the very thing that ignited the spark for this group to follow Jesus. It's the very gospel itself. We use the language of rehearsing the gospel, and it's a good one. You need to regularly be reminding yourself of where you started and where God brought you to get here. Earlier we heard uh, 1 Peter quoted. We, we were not always close to God, not always part of his family. In fact, all of us started off as aliens, outsiders, deserving of nothing of this God except his wrath. And if God had not intervened, he would have allowed us to run our hell-bound race away from him all the way to our eternal destruction. And yet he did something, didn't he? He sent his very son to come and rescue rebel sinners like us. He sent him to take those of us who are far off and to bring us near. How? By dying on the cross for our sins. That's what Jesus did to start this spirit-empowered community. And that same gospel is the very thing that will sustain this community for all the days until he comes back. If you're struggling, if you just feel your heart cold, even on a Sunday where you should be worshiping, maybe you need to spend some time this afternoon rehearsing the gospel to yourself. I remember watching and being rebuked not, not by direct confrontation, but being rebuked through someone else's joy. Uh, I was it, it, at a, a good church, and uh, I was there on, I was serving, and I just wasn't in the right place that particular morning. And uh, I w- saw a guy that just had this grin on his face that was just unbelievable. And I remember thinking, like, man, that guy's just so happy to be here. That, this is weird. And... Uh, I went through the rest of the day, and it was it, it just kind of stuck in my mind a little bit. And uh, later on, I found out why, and I got to actually meet the guy. I got to have him over our house. The reason why he was so excited is he had been a believer in a country where people persecute you for being a Christian. And in fact, it had gotten so bad that he had to flee the country. He was here as a, uh, a refugee. He, the U.S. government had let him in because he was uh, persecuted. His life was in danger. And I had happened to run into him on his first day worshiping among the gathering of believers. And I remember asking him about it, and he said, oh yeah, of course I was so happy. I was just overwhelmed by the thought, I get to worship God with other people openly. And it was just a a rebuke to my heart in that moment. Now maybe you're feeling that sort of rebuke to your heart by looking at the positive example of this spirit-empowered church on mission for Christ. Friend, if that's you, don't, don't be overly discouraged by this. Realize that it takes stoking of the fire to keep on worshiping Christ the way our hearts ought to. There is the flesh, there is the devil, there are all manner of things that distract us, and yet if we keep driving back to the gospel, we'll find we're able to worship God as a community the way we ought to. Four marks of this spirit-empowered community. 
final one comes in verse 47. The Spirit-empowered community is a witnessing community. I mean, I, I hope up till now you are encouraged by what is going on. This is a, a church that loves being together. It's a church around God's word. They're, they're loving on each other. They're giving to each other. They're worshiping together. But they avoid something that so many churches fall into, growing inward. That holy huddle that keeps people out. But look what happens in verse 47. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Oh, how exciting that must have been. They just added 3,000 members and they're not satisfied. (laughs) They're still out there gossiping the gospel, talking to anyone that will listen about Jesus because... Why wouldn't you share that news? It's amazing what happens when you are captured by the gospel. It says they were out there, they had favor with all the people. That means they're both out in the community and they had a good reputation. People actually liked talking with them. Now, I know that sometimes churches have the the best of intentions. They're trying to do life and ministry together and over time, it's almost imperceptibly. You just... Notice there aren't as many visitors, not as many conversions year after year. And little by little, you start to just talk to the same people and do life with the same people. And before you know it, church pretty much is the same. It kind of sets in stone. And yet, I don't think the Bible really lets us as believers get, say that that's okay. Uh, yes, it's true. Only God can save a sinner. Only God can bring a conversion. And we might be the best, most outward-focused church, faithfully preaching the gospel and not see any conversions for a long time. That is true. And yet there should be an expectation, even a, a deep longing, that God might add to our number and use us to bring someone to Jesus. There's a book we're reading as a staff called uh, Gaining by Losing by a guy named J.D. Greer. Uh, It's talking about how churches need to have this mentality to send people all over the place, to be deployment centers instead of building uh, a kingdom. And in it, he talks about this evangelistic zeal. There's a church he heard about where uh, it's another country where conversions are so regular that if a small group fails to have a conversion and bring someone into the church for a full year, that small group comes under church discipline. Now, I don't think that's the way church discipline should be done. That's not the way we're going to do it. It's not biblical grounds. But it shows just that there's this expectation that we are going to be sharing the gospel so much that surely someone is going to respond in faith to Jesus. Now, as a church right now, we are not doing a lot of programmatic evangelism. We are figuring that sort of stuff out. And in fact, I'd invite you to come back tonight if you're interested in seeing the Lord do that among us. We're going to spend some of our prayer meeting tonight praying for how the Lord would want us to pursue that very thing. But I hope during this time where our programs aren't built out yet, and we as a church aren't as busy as we probably will be in the years to come, I hope you aren't taking this as a time to just kind of kick back and just uh, relax a little. I hope you're using this time to build relationships with your neighbors and try and gossip the gospel as best you can. 
If you're looking for a way to do that, let me just remind you, next Sunday is a pretty big event in this, our culture. Uh, Super Bowl's coming up. Um, that you are not going to have an easier cultural moment to invite a neighbor into your house and say, hey, come meet some bean dip and yell at the TV with me. Uh, l- let's have a good time and let me get to know you a little bit. As a community, if we're not sharing the gospel or at least seeking to share the gospel with people over time, inevitably, we will start to turn inward. It's just the nature of sin and the nature of the enemy we face. But the good news is, friends, when we see ourselves as witnesses of Jesus, our joy as a community will multiply. I can't wait for the day when we get to stand together as a congregation and celebrate that God has saved someone among us. I hope you can't wait for that day too. So let's keep our hearts in the right place and let's be leaning into this, that we are going to be a witnessing community ready to bring new people in. We've seen there are four marks to this spirit-empowered community on Christ's mission. Circling back to our Sunday assemblies, I hope by now you realize hope by now that you're convinced that there's something majorly missing if you have all the form of church but you have no Jesus. Without Jesus, without his mission, without his spirit's empowerment, without his word, there is no church. Without the gospel of Jesus, none of us would have reason to be in relationship with each other the way we do. There's an example of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who uh, at one point in his walk uh, was together in a very vibrant community with other believers. Uh, It was at the point where the Nazis were just rising to power and were starting to clamp down on the gatherings of believers. Uh, Bonhoeffer became convinced that the Lord was calling him to go work in an illegal seminary training other believers. And uh, he went out in the countryside and he got these people together and there was a sense that if they got found out, they were probably going to prison or maybe something worse would happen. And as a result, there was this pressure from the outside, but there was this life on the inside. He wrote this book called Life Together, reflecting on that experience before the Nazis broke it up. Listen to what he says the community of Christians is like. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief, single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to each other only through and in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I pray we could say that about us. We realize we were made for community, a particular community, the spirit-empowered community on Christ's mission. I pray as we do this together that we will see our our joy multiplied. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the partnership in the gospel we get to share. Thank you for the ways we get to love each other, fellowship together, to encourage each other, and to be on mission with each other for your sake. 
Would you now make our worship in response to what your word has revealed? Would you make this a sweet time among us? Make us into one of these churches that brings you glory by not being about ourselves, but being all about Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.